This morning, if you would, turn with me to the third chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 3. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locust and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Verse 13, it says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and, lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and, lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Lord will bless us today. I'd like to look at the subject of baptism. As we've looked at the doctrine, began to look at the doctrine of the New Testament church, we saw two weeks ago the perpetuity of the New Testament church, and the last week the succession or how the church would go on perpetually uh, throughout the world. The Lord will bless us over the next coming weeks. I'd like to look at what I would consider identifying marks of the New Testament church. Elder Sylvester Hassel, when he wrote his history of the church of God, he listed out 12 identifying marks. I probably won't go with all 12 12 of his, although I don't disagree with him. There's some that um, I probably consider a little more important than he did, but it is a good reference point that he, he wrote for our people uh, almost uh, 140 years ago. Uh, but uh, there's no doubt that as people are seeking uh, the truth in this world, they need to find marks that would identify the New Testament church. And the Bible lets us know that there are things that we must contend for if we are going to maintain Uh, the light of the Lord is a New Testament church. Jude told us that we are to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. That's not a suggestion, that's a commandment. And when we fail to do that, then we have failed to follow the commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel writer, excuse me, through the writer uh, of the book of Jude. So you and I have the responsibility not to just contend, he says to earnestly contend. That means It's something that we're to constantly pay attention to. And the reason that we're to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints, number one, the faith that was once delivered to the saints is a contentious issue. Uh, Not all agree with it and not all will be agreeable with us as we try to defend the faith, but it is still our responsibility as soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ to contend uh, with those in this world who would uh, fight against the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that we have to engage them in an ungodly way, not at all. We just simply are to hold fast, stand firm in the principles of the gospel of Christ. Uh, as I look at the New Testament church uh, and her identifying marks, the first thing that comes to my mind is the subject or doctrine of baptism. Now, one would think that this ought to be a very straightforward topic, and in the word of God it is, but obviously throughout history this, uh, this practice, this ordinance of the New Testament church has been 
I would say modified, but I don't believe it's been modified. It has been degraded uh, from how Jesus originally intended it to be. In the world today, there are uh, more than one way in which folks uh, view the actual mode of baptism. As Baptists, we believe in immersion for baptism, which is how it was done in the Word of God. The word baptize literally means to make whelmed or to overwhelm. It also means to dip or to immerse or to submerge fully like a sunken vessel in the sea. It also means to overwhelm. So obviously, if I were to take a bit of water and sprinkle it upon the head of an individual, that's not uh, doing uh, what was done to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not what the apostles experienced in their baptism. In fact, you cannot find it all in the New Testament. In fact, in reading on the issue of sprinkling versus immersion, the first sprinkling didn't occur until about 300 years after the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was done for an individual who was on his deathbed. Uh, so around AD 350, a man was on his deathbed desiring to be baptized, and so a minister decided, I'll sprinkle him instead of immerse him. Well, uh, even the Catholic Church at that time disregarded that person's baptism. They viewed him as having died without baptism. It would be sometime not long thereafter that infants would begin to be sprinkled instead of immersed. Obviously, we'll get into the issue of uh, believer's baptism here shortly. It wasn't until early in the 1300s that the Catholic Church finally adopted uh, sprinkling as a mode of baptism. So for over 1,300 years, it was not viewed as an acceptable form of baptism. And even when the Catholic Church finally agreed to allow it to be used within her church, it was still left up to the individual priest whether to still comply or follow immersion or to do sprinkling instead. I think as far as I know anyway, every priest now among the Catholic body, they all sprinkle. But And uh, through history, obviously over the last 700 years, it's changed from uh, mostly still doing immersion to now uh, sprinkling. But again, the word means to overwhelm, to dip, to submerge fully, again, like a vessel that is sunk in the sea. But before we get to that, I want to look at the history of baptism itself. And we've just read here in Matthew chapter 3 where baptism finds its origin. Now, the Jewish people were not unaccustomed to washings. In fact, as you read Leviticus, the 8th chapter, you'll find where Moses, uh, in a sense, baptized Aaron and his two sons before the whole congregation of the people. He would then uh, uh, dip blood and put that upon the right ear and right uh, thumb and the right great toe of those men as well. But there was a ceremonial washing there that took place uh, before they entered into the priesthood. And before you and I enter in as... Um, let's say, outward priest of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we also have a ceremonial washing that takes place when we're baptized. The Bible makes it clear that baptism does not put away the filth of the flesh, but rather it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. Uh, Moses, uh, when he baptized or washed uh, Aaron and his two sons, obviously did not save them from hell to heaven. It just was a ceremonial washing. It was an outward uh, show of a cleansing that was taking place before they would enter into that office. So the Jewish people, as John the Baptist began to baptize, did not find that completely curious because they had some understanding 
of this practice. Just like feet washing, uh, the Jewish people had some understanding. So there's some crossover into the New Testament church of things that were done in Old Testament times. Uh, the Lord knew, obviously, that he would use these things in the New Testament, and so the Jewish people were uh, somewhat familiar, and in fact, even some of the pagan uh, rituals would also line up with this practice. So when they came to John the Baptist, uh, they didn't find it all that curious. Now, the requirements he placed on individuals, that, of course, they found quite curious. So John the Baptist, who is he? Well, we all know, I think, that in Luke chapter 1, he has a father by the name of Zechariah and a mother by the name of Elizabeth. They're both aged. His father is a priest, which means he's of the tribe of Levi. And so John the Baptist was a Levite. And here we find that the, this couple had been many years without a child. And while his father was in the temple doing uh, his business as it was his course, there was an angel that appeared to him and began to express to him how that their prayer had been heard and that they would have a son. And he goes on and lets him know that he would uh, follow what the prophet Isaiah said, that he would be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. Of course, his father was uh, dumbfounded by these things. In fact, asked the question, how shall I know this shall come to pass? And so the way the sign that the angel gave him is he would not be able to speak. He would be dumb until the birth of John the Baptist. And not very long thereafter, his uh, uh, wife Elizabeth, she's with child. The Bible also lets us know that when he was born, uh, Zacharias began to prophesy regarding him. And the Bible says that the spirit was upon him uh, from his youth. This was an extraordinary man. In fact, there's no other individual like John the Baptist in all the Bible. He is literally a bridge, a link from the Old Testament to the New. There would be one individual that had the authority at this time to baptize. He was the only one. And his authority came directly from heaven. In fact, in Matthew chapter 21, the Lord Jesus Christ was tired of all the questions of the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests as they tried to trip him up in the things that he believed and was saying. And finally, he turned the tables on them and he asked this question. Uh, John's baptism, from whence was it? Of men or from heaven? And uh, they didn't know what to say. They said, well, if we say it's from heaven, he'll say, well, why didn't you believe him? But if we say if it's of men, we fear the people because they believe John was a prophet. So they said, we cannot tell. You know, we just don't know. And so Jesus said, neither tell I you anything. And so Jesus stopped them right there. But the implication is John's baptism was from heaven. His authority to baptize was directly from God the Father. He had his authority not by any earthly man, not by any earthly institution, but the authority that was granted John the Baptist was given him by God himself. His ministry was going to be a short ministry, and it was a very specific ministry. He was to prepare a people for the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he was to make ready a people as the Lord would come on the scene and began his public ministry. There were to be those that were already prepared to receive the message that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. So in Matthew chapter 3, notice again how John's preaching starts. He says, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning it is arrived. It is here. How do we know that it's arrived? Because Jesus is going to come a few verses later, who is the king over his kingdom, to be baptized of John. And John knows that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is on the earth. And he's letting individuals know that the kingdom of heaven, that means the kingdom that's from heaven, is here. It's at hand. It's not afar off. He says it's right here at hand. And he tells the Jewish people, repent. 
Now, does that mean they were to turn from ungodliness to godliness? It included that. But primarily, his, uh, his message was that they were to turn their attention from physical, earthly signs and symbols and things to heavenly uh, evidences. They were to look with new eyes, if you will, and understand things in a way they had not understood them before. The things with the Levitical priesthood were very outward. They were physical. They could be seen and felt with the senses of the natural body. But the things that would go on in the kingdom of heaven are things that would have to be discerned by the spirit of man, uh, that, uh, excuse me, the spirit of God within a man. Obviously, the natural man uh, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. So John the Baptist is letting them know that their attention is going to have to be turned from one thing to another. That their focus from one thing to another. Their priorities from one thing to another. The things they understood from that out of something different to something new. And so John had the ministry of preparing individuals to be open-minded, if you will, uh, to what the Lord Jesus Christ would do and what he would teach in the church he would institute while he was here in this world. So he says, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ, excuse me, of John the Baptist. He said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, saying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And it goes on to let us know about John's lifestyle. It was a very interesting and curious lifestyle. Uh, he lived basically out in the wilderness. Uh, the Bible tells us that his meat was locust and wild honey. Jesus would later say that John came neither eating nor drinking. He didn't engage with uh, the parties and the socializing that was going on in the communities. Uh, he kept himself separate from those things. And uh, they said that he had a devil. So he says, but the son of man came eating and drinking. He says, and y'all called him a gluttonous man and a wine bibber. He says, so either way, uh, I couldn't win and John the Baptist couldn't win. But this man had a very curious lifestyle. He lived separate mostly from the people of Israel. And so they came to where he was. Notice it says, then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan. Notice this, confessing their sins. So the first thing we learn about the baptism of John is these were individuals that were confessing their sins. An infant cannot confess their sins. Uh, an infant's not aware of the fact that they're a sinner. And they certainly do not have the ability to confess their sins. And thus we conclude that in the Word of God we find the teaching of what we would call believer's baptism. Uh, some would call it credo-baptism or baptism by creed or by confession. That when you and I are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, we are making a profession and also a confession. We are confessing we are sinners and we are professing by the fact that we're being baptized that our only hope of heaven is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, that is what believer's baptism is. It's somebody who understands they're a sinner and they're in need of a Savior. But thank God we recognize in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have that Savior. And so by being baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, we are professing publicly to the world uh, that we believe our only way and hope of heaven uh, rests in the fact that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again the third day in our behalf. Uh, uh, that's what you and I are doing uh, when you and I uh, make a public profession through the baptism that we experience. Uh, that's our primary purpose in baptism, and we'll get more to the purpose of baptism uh, here shortly. 
But anyway, here John, he says, uh, uh, or Matthew says that the folks that came to be baptized of John and Jordan, they came confessing their sins. One of the things that I want to hear from somebody that wants to join the New Testament church is they understand that they're a sinner. And they also understand they need a Savior. And that they understand that they have a Savior in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want them opposing the doctrine of election. I don't want them opposing the doctrine of predestination or the doctrines that they may not understand those things yet. And as long as they have a learning mentality, I'm fine moving forward with their baptism. Uh, however, if they're objecting to the things of the New Testament, then obviously we have a problem, and they're not a believer at that point. We need to hold back a bit. But primarily, these folks came to John confessing their sins. But notice, in the next verse, he says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said to them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He understood something about these individuals. He understood them to be children of hell. And he wanted no part with them, and they were going to have no part with him. Notice what he goes on to say. Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. He says, if you want to be baptized of me, you're going to have to show forth works uh, that are meet or that are in connection with the fact that you've repented of your life style uh, up to this point. Again, he says, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there's individuals that came to him sincerely and honestly, and they confessed their sins. These folks, they come out curiously wanting to see what's going on out here at Jordan's River. They want to be baptized of John like other folks, but not for the same reason. Uh, they want to be baptized for the show of it, I suppose. But John was able to discern that these were wicked men, and they had no part with the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus, he would not baptize them. That tells me that we do have a right as a New Testament church to be discerning about who uh, we grant membership to and who we allow uh, to be baptized. Uh, that is a right of the New Testament church. Uh, John the Baptist exercised that right here in this place. Anyway, so here's the history of baptism. It begins with John himself. And obviously many had been baptized by John. And then we find the Lord Jesus Christ, he comes and is immersed by John also. Notice uh, uh, how it reads about the baptism of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Jesus comes from Galilee to Jordan unto John. About 60 to 90 miles that Jesus walks to John the Baptist. Now let me say this. If anybody in the world could baptize, then why in the world walk 60 to 90 miles to be baptized of John and Jordan? Because the Lord Jesus Christ recognized that the only authority on earth at that time to baptize was John the Baptist. So he went to where the authority was. Uh, he goes to Jordan to where John is. Now in John's gospel, as you read in the account of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Lord Jesus uh, approaches John, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. But here in Matthew's account, as the Lord comes uh, to John the Baptist, uh, uh, he wants to be baptized him, but John forbade him. John says, no. He says, I have need to be baptized of thee. You know what John has just recognized? He said, I know that the authority that I have to baptize only came from you. He's confessing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he realizes that... Uh, He's unworthy, and truly he was unworthy in one sense to baptize the Lord Jesus Christ. But since he was the only authorized individual on the face of the earth to baptize, if Jesus is to be baptized, John's the only one that can do it. And so Jesus responds and says, Suffer to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. 
And Jesus, when he was baptized, notice this, went up straightway out of the water. That indicates to me an immersion, not a sprinkling. Here Jesus went under the water, and when he came forth up out of the water, notice what happens. The heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So the Lord Jesus Christ didn't come to John the Baptist needing to repent, nor to confess his sins. But he does say, Suffer to be so now, for thus it becometh us, who? Uh, children of God. He said, It becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. So that tells me when you and I are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, one thing we can count on, if we're doing it sincerely, if we're repenting of our sins and uh, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ then, uh, and confessing our sins and professing Him, uh, then we are fulfilling all righteousness. This is the first step of true discipleship. If you truly wanted to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you'll follow Him in gospel baptism. Uh, did Jesus need to be baptized in the sense that uh, uh, he needed to profess a Savior? No, he was not a sinner. Uh, did he need to be baptized uh, to show that he had to repent? No, he never did anything wrong. Uh, did he need to be baptized in order to confess his sins? There were no sins to confess. But he was showing us a pattern and showing us an example. And if the Son of God uh, could submit himself to the authority of John the Baptist to be baptized, then children of God can submit themselves to the authority of the New Testament church and the administrator of the ordinance of the church and be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. If it was good enough for the Lord Jesus Christ, it ought to be good enough for us. And it has been in my life. Uh, that's one thing that I've never regretted. Uh, one thing that I've never uh, looked back on and said, I wish I hadn't done that. Not one time. That was, uh, goodness, 31 years ago now, I think, that I was, or no, about 30 years ago. It was 30 years this year, in fact. In the year uh, 1993, in the month of June, so just a month away from 30 years, and I have not once regretted it. In fact, one of the things that I can do is when I consider myself a failure, which I often am and often consider myself that, well, one thing that I can do when I am downcast and wonder, have I ever really pleased God? I can always go back to that day. When I was baptized, I say, well, at least I know one occasion in my life I did something that I know pleased the Lord. And that alone makes it worth it. Now, there's been a lot of other benefits of having been baptized. But that's one of them that any time I grow discouraged of whether or not I've ever really pleased the Lord, I can just go back to that day and remember the feeling that I had when I came forth out of the water, that I knew the Father, at least in that one moment of my life, was pleased or satisfied with me. So anyway, we looked at the history of baptism. John the Baptist, he begins the practice uh, for the New Testament era. Uh, and here he's baptizing folks, commanding that they repent. And as they come out, they confess that they're sinners. The Lord Jesus Christ uh, shows us a pattern. Uh, if he was to be baptized, then you and I ought to be as well. So, as we've already mentioned, the mode of baptism is immersion. And wherever you go in the Word of God, and you can go all over it, uh, you'll find the word baptized, baptized, baptism, baptizing, 
uh, altogether close to 100 times. Every time, it has the same meaning, to dip, to immerse, to submerge, to overwhelm like a vessel that is sunk. Every single time, that's going to be the meaning, uh, it, without fail. And so every time you find somebody being baptized in the New Testament, you're going to find them being immersed. That means that they are laid into the waters like a person buried in the grave, and then they come forth. Why that way? Because it's a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both ordinances of the New Testament church, whether it be the Lord's Supper or whether it be baptism, both picture the same thing. And that is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only two visible emblems that we have in the New Testament church. If you'll notice behind me, there's no cross hanging upon the wall. Uh, we do not have uh, images and idols here in this building. The only images that we have in the house of God that are tangible or physical are when we baptize somebody or when we take the Lord's Supper. In the baptism, we have literal water and a literal person being buried in that water and brought forth from the water. When we come to the Lord's table, what do we have? We have unleavened bread, which is a picture of the holy body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have wine, which is a picture of the pure blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why bread and water and why separated there? Showing that he shed his blood after his body was bruised and beaten. And there he did all of that, as Isaiah would say, that he was bruised for our iniquities. And through his stripes or by his stripes, we are healed. Uh, so both ordinances of the New Testament church picture uh, the central element of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Obviously, a sprinkling does not bring about that image. If I were to take water and sprinkle on the head of an individual, that does not show the picture of a death, a burial, and a resurrection. How did Jesus die? Suspended between heaven and earth upon a cross. Uh, when somebody's standing in the baptismal pool behind me, we start out standing upright. Why? Picturing Jesus' death hanging upon a cross. Then what do you see me do? You see me lay them back into the waters just like men uh, laid Jesus in the tomb. And then what do you see occur? You see me bring them upright uh, showing a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You do not get that picture in sprinkling water on the head of an individual. And I'm not trying to be unkind about it's just not the picture that that brings to mind. But the picture that we see in an immersion is the picture we're supposed to see. And that is Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection from the dead three days and three nights later. So again, the mode is immersion, and I hope that that's a settled matter. Um, <clears throat> I've heard the story. Some of you are still here that remember it. Sister Lenny Rose's husband wanted to be baptized. He was in the hospital and he was close to death and wanted to be baptized before he left this world. They made arrangements for that. If I remember right, he had a feeding tube or something and they were very concerned about infection, which I don't really understand because he was dying. But anyway, Brother Ronald convinced them not to worry about that, that um, the Lord would take care. And so they prepared, a, 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 I believe it was a bathtub there at the hospital, and Brother Ronald immersed him uh, just like I would immerse somebody here in the church. Do you understand, Brother Ronald didn't change the mode because of the situation? 
I was in an occasion one time where there was a man that wanted to be baptized, and it was just absolutely impossible. He was past the point of that ability, and so I just had to express to him and let him know that that was not a condition in order for him to go into heaven. See, he had been raised to believe that he had to be baptized in order to go to heaven, and he was close to death, and he knew it, and so he was very, very concerned about it. He had to be married to an old Baptist, who, and she called me and asked if I would come talk to them. She had told him all the things that I had told him, but he wouldn't believe her. He says, I've got to hear it from a preacher, and I don't know why that. I mean, he thought because I said it, it carried a greater weight. I told him the exact same things that she had told him, and he was reconciled to that, and so he left this world not having been baptized. I would encourage you, don't get to that point. <laughs> Don't wait until your dying breath in order uh, to follow the commandment of the Lord Jesus Christ to be baptized. Do it early in life. As Ecclesiastes 12 says, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, when the uh, evil days come not. Uh, you and I ought to start out early and not wait till we're late in life. I've known of individuals that were literally in a straight back chair because they could not physically get into a baptistry. And so sitting in a chair, they were laid back. They could not stand upright. It was just impossible. And so they were laid, but they were fully and wholly immersed in water like the Lord Jesus Christ was. So again, the mode is immersion. And, and again, I believe we all know that's a settled matter. And I will not. I will not do it differently. In the case of the man that I mentioned whose wife told him and I told him that uh, he didn't need that in order to go to heaven, uh, if he had asked me, would you then go ahead and sprinkle me, the answer would have been no. I'm not going to alter what I'm authorized to do by the New Testament to suit the situation that I might find myself in. We've got to do our best to make our situation fit the New Testament. And if we can't fit the New Testament model, then we just don't do it. It's that simple. It's that simple. Let's talk for a few moments about the candidate for baptism. Who can be baptized? Here John would not baptize certain individuals because their works, the things they did, did not show that they had a lifestyle that was fitting for the kingdom of heaven. So that tells me that one of the things that is required of an individual to be baptized is they need a lifestyle that is fitting or would adorn the kingdom of heaven. It would line up with how we're supposed to live in God's kingdom. And if we don't see that prior to baptism, then we need to halt the baptism. And hopefully, uh, before long, if somebody is truly uh, sorry for their sins, that's going to that's gonna come to our knowledge, I believe, very quickly. Uh, it usually doesn't take long. Maybe there's somebody in the community that's been known for years to be a drunkard and maybe all sorts of ungodly things, but truly does uh, get uh, dealt with by the Lord. I believe the evidence of that will show forth and probably very quickly. Uh, but here again, John the Baptist wouldn't baptize just anybody. Uh, they had to confess their sins. They had to show a lifestyle that was fit for the kingdom of heaven. By that, we must conclude that these individuals were old enough at least to comprehend, understand, and confess. So that eliminates uh, infant baptism. That's just how it is. Now, you and I don't believe that baptism is necessary in order to go to heaven. Now, there's some that have adopted the idea of infant purity... And that's how they get around infant baptism. They don't practice infant baptism because they don't believe the need is there because until they reach the age of 12, they're not accountable for their sins. I grew up, before I uh, joined the Old Baptist Church, uh, going to 
uh, congregation of folks that that's what they believed. I've told you before about the pastor of that church that came to our home when I was 11 years of age and I was just a few months from turning 12. And he was very concerned uh, that once I turned 12, I would now be accountable. And so I needed to make a profession uh, of my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be baptized so that in case I died, I was taken care of. I was secure. He was a Baptist. He didn't believe in infant baptism, but he did believe in infant purity. So now he was very worried because I was about to get to the point where I wasn't going to be pure. And I don't know, you know, I, I suspect they come up with the age of 12 because that's when Jesus was in the temple. Uh, They're speaking with the doctors and the lawyers. But we all know that the moment we're conceived, we have the nature of sin. David said, that he came forth from the womb, or the wicked comes forth the womb speaking lies. Well, that's all of us, unless we're born again in the womb. But even when we're, if we're born again in the womb and come forth, we still have the nature of sin. And before long, we prove that reality. So in the word of God, every time you find somebody being baptized, you're going to find individuals that were able to confess. Now you may say, well, Brother Chris, I can remember occasions in the word of God where someone in their household were baptized, we might could assume then that there were infants in that household. Well, you might could assume that, but let me say this. You always interpret the vague of the Bible by the clear and the plain. And when the clear and the plain indicate to us that the person being baptized was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then when I see like in Acts chapter 16, Lydia and her house being baptized, I'm going to believe that everybody in that household that was baptized were of age to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the vague I'm going to interpret by the plain. I'm not going to interpret the plain by the vague. Uh, you never should do that. Never at all. Uh, if every individual who reads the word of God would always interpret uh, that which is not clear uh, with the clear words in the word of God, then uh, the ambiguity would clear itself up. Uh, that's why we rightly divide the word of truth. There are things in the word of God that take some consideration, some thought, some pondering. And if you'll just search the rest of the Bible, you'll usually find the answer for it. Anyway, uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. We've quoted this a number of times already in this series, but it also fits the subject of baptism. In Matthew chapter 28, verse uh, 19, the Lord Jesus Christ says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. In verse 19, Jesus tells the, uh, the apostles that they were to go forth and they were to teach all nations. Then they were to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And he says, and then you're to teach them. <laughs> Notice what goes on here. There's teaching, then there's baptizing, and then there's teaching. Why in the world would you have teaching prior to baptism? Because they need to know about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ prior to being baptized. But they're not going to know everything about the word of God and the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ before they're baptized. And so there's some teaching that goes on after baptism. But notice again the order. Jesus says you're to go forth into all nations teaching uh, them, in the, excuse me, teach all nations, baptizing them. So again, there's teaching first, baptizing second, and then we circle back to teaching. So here the Lord Jesus in this verse clearly implies to us 
that a person that's to be baptized first must be taught. Uh, they're to have some comprehension and some understanding about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, they may not grasp everything about election. They may not grasp everything about the will of God. Everything about uh, uh, the perpetuity of the church. They may not understand everything uh, that hopefully you have grasped through the years. But hopefully they have gleaned this much. Uh, that they're a sinner. They need a Savior. And they have a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. And they're to be baptized in His name. And in the name of the Father. And also the name of the Holy Ghost. They need to know that much at the very least. Uh, turn with me to the book of Acts, the 8th chapter. In Acts chapter 8, we find where Philip has been in Samaria preaching the gospel, and a great revival burst out as he's preaching the gospel there. But while he's preaching the gospel in Samaria, uh, the Lord commands him to leave that place, and he's to go forth uh, towards the desert. And so it says, he arose and went forth. <laughs> this is verse 27. Now, I'd, I'd hate to leave a great revival where I'm baptizing a lot of folks. But see, God has used Philip in Acts 8 in the city of Samaria to preach and teach and to baptize. And many are baptized in that place. And now, verse 26, it says, The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south and of the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. <laughs> you know, I would think, wait a minute, Lord, I don't think there's all that many people in the desert. <laughs> So why do you want me to leave the people in Samaria to go to the desert? Well, because the Lord knew that there was going to be one individual in the desert that needed to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As you read on in the story, notice, it says, He arose and he went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet, or Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. God is very specific. He says, I want you to leave Samaria, and you're to go southward on the way to Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. So he starts going. He leaves Samaria. He leaves behind the evangelistic work he's doing in that place. And he proceeds to the desert for one person. So here comes this chariot. Now, if I had been uh, Philip, I would need the Lord to be very specific with me as well. Because if I see basically the, uh, the secretary of the treasury of Egypt, or yeah, Ethiopia from Egypt coming through, I suspect his chariot didn't look like everybody else's. If he has all the treasure of the queen of Ethiopia, I suspect his chariot looked a little different. I don't know if any of y'all watched any part of the coronation uh, that took place in England over the weekend. Uh, if you did, you saw two different uh, chariots. Uh, you saw the, uh, the queen's chariot that was used for her 60th anniversary. I can't remember what they called it. The Diamond Jubilee, maybe. And then on the way back from Westminster Abbey, Charles and Camilla, they were riding in the Golden State carriage. Very flashy ride. Uh, I don't know that uh, the Unix was quite that uh, attractive, but I suspect it stood out from most in that day. And so now the Spirit tells Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. So he does. It says, Philip ran. I like how Philip obeys the Lord. God says, leave all this baptizing. I mean, Wait a minute, Lord, I'm enjoying this too much. No, 
and you go to the desert. Well, there's nobody there. There's going to be. Now you go join yourself to the chariot there. And he ran. He didn't, he didn't delay. It says he ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. And the place of, this, of the scripture which he read was this, Isaiah 53, we've already quoted from this morning. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so openeth he not his mouth. He goes on in his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth. So here is this unit reading Isaiah 53. How he had come across Isaiah 53, I'm not exactly sure. But from my gathering of this, it seems like this man knew something about Jewish religion, which it had spread. It, the Jews had been in Egypt. I mean, they, it, their, their Bible had gotten around somewhat. I think he's come to Jerusalem most likely to get an answer. I mean, if you're reading a Jewish Bible and you have a question that's arisen in your mind out of a Jewish Bible, where would you go to get an answer? And that day, in that day, you would go to Jerusalem, would you not? I mean, that is where the temple is. That's where the priests are. That's where the high priest is. That's where the elders, scribes, and Pharisees all are. So that's where you would think one would go to obtain an answer to a question. And it, I, that seems what, like what he's done. He's gone up there, but, but the problem is they didn't help him out any. He's going back to Ethiopia, none the better. And let me tell you, when you come to the house of God and you leave more confused than you did coming in, there's a problem either with your listening or the preacher's preaching. Uh, it's one of the two. There's a disconnect somewhere. Uh, hopefully the man of God is apt to teach. He has the ability to do so. So maybe it could be. Maybe I just wasn't paying good enough attention that day. Or maybe the preacher just wasn't very clear. Or maybe he was am using ambiguity on purpose and we've seen that as well where a man's trying to cause confusion in the house of God. But anyway, this man clearly got no satisfaction in Jerusalem. So he says to Philip, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? I don't know how long they spent together. Obviously, this question went from Isaiah 53, which is talking about what? The sufferings and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, he's right in the heart of the matter of the gospel. So Philip... He just starts right in that same scripture and preaches to him Jesus. He just opens his mouth and begins to teach him. He has enough understanding of the word of God that this man could quote him a scripture. And Philip could just start with that same scripture and began to teach and preach to him the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they go on a little ways. And as they go on, he says, here's water. Uh, what doth hinder me to be baptized? What would stop me, in other words? Well, Philip, he has a requirement. He says, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. That indicates to me that if he had not believed with all of his heart, he could not. But here Philip says, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's a pretty satisfactory answer, uh, uh, given the man's confusion about Isaiah 53 prior to the sermon that he heard from Philip. 
Uh, Philip preaches to him. It gets to baptism at some point because the man sees water. Says, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And the man says to him, if thou believest with all thine heart thou mayest. Here's how he responds. Here's his, he says, I know this much. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they both went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, indicates once again an immersion. So here they both go down into the water. The eunuch is baptized. As they come up out of the water, it says, The Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Now, a lot of folks get hung up on where was his church membership. I'm not too concerned about that. Why? Because the Bible doesn't tell me. So obviously I don't have to know. Uh, but I do know this, that this man, Philip, had the authority to baptize. And when he had preached the gospel to this man, and the man gave consent to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that was sufficient for Philip to feel comfortable to baptize him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So here, God directs Philip away from a great evangelistic effort where many are being baptized. Why? Because there was one individual who was hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And you know what? That one individual in the, the desert was just important to God than all that mass of folks in Samaria that had already been baptized. But I bring all this out to show that this individual, before he could be baptized, had to make a confession and his confession was that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So here we find that a believer is being baptized. We could go all over the book of Acts and show where believers are baptized, but let's just turn to one more place and then we need to move on quickly. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter, after he had preached on the day of Pentecost, it says in verse 37, Now when they had heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, Peter, if you'll recall, has charged them with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't apologize for it. He just says, you're responsible for the death of Jesus. And so when they hear this, it's pricking them in their heart, which is a good thing. That means they had a heart that could feel, a heart that could uh, understand, a heart that could feel guilty over the things uh, that they had heard uh, about themselves and so it says, when they had heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter responds this way. He says, repent, turn from that way, in other words, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So the Bible goes on to let us know that these men do just that. It says, verse 41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. There were some folks there that were mockers and scoffers that day. If you recall, as the apostles began to speak in different languages, what did some of the men say? They mocked, saying, these men are drunk uh, on new wine. Uh, they're drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. They're already, Peter says, no, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so he begins to, number one, uh, defend the apostles in what they were speaking. And then he begins to uh, condemn these individuals for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the midst of that, he also declares that Jesus Christ was approved of God. He's the Son of God. And he's sitting on the throne of his father David. <laughs> So here Peter preaches all these things and these men, when they hear this, they're pricked in their heart. They say, what shall we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. 
We could get hung up on the for, for the for thee. That just means because of. Uh, in order, not in order to, but because of the fact that their sins had been remitted, they're to be baptized. Baptism does not remit our sins, understand, at least not uh, legally before God. But it'll give you the answer of a good conscience. It'll answer uh, some problems you have in your mind. It'll make you feel that your sins have been remitted. Anyway, it says, then they that gladly received his word. Not just everybody there that day. Notice how the Bible qualifies who was baptized. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. About 3,000 gladly received that word. And so about 3,000 then were baptized and added to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we could go to multiple places in the word of God and find where believers were baptized. And only believers. And let me say once more. You can turn to Acts 16 and you can read about Lydia and her household and the Philippian jailer and his household being baptized. And some try to extrapolate from that. Well, there probably must, must have been toddlers and infants in that group. Once again, interpret the vague by the plain. And the Bible doesn't say it. Then I have no reason to believe it. Uh, so the Bible doesn't say that there were infants in the household of Lydia that were baptized. It doesn't say there were infants in the household of the jailer that were baptized. But all over the book of Acts, I can find where only believers were baptized. And I can find the specific commandment of uh, Philip to the eunuch saying, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And so that is the condition. If a child of God believes with all their heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then they may be baptized. That's the proper candidate. The proper mode, again, is immersion. There's also a proper administrator. Let me just say plainly, that's a duly ordained New Testament minister. You won't find anywhere in the New Testament where anybody but an ordained minister baptized. Not one. There's no example of it. I find it astounding today where I see folks being baptized and it'll be their father or an uncle or brother. They can just pick whoever they want. I remember the very first time I ever heard of that. A family member of mine was going to be baptized, so they asked if I would go. It was going to be on a Sunday evening. It was in a different order, so I said I would go. And I was dumbfounded when I saw that person's father go into the pool with them and do the baptizing. I knew that individual was not a minister of the gospel. I also knew that the night before that man had been drinking a lot and surely had no uh, uh, right to be going into those waters baptizing somebody. I was dumbfounded by what I saw, but that is actually becoming quite prevalent among many uh, in Christianity today to just allow anybody that wants to to do the baptizing. You will not find that in the New Testament. In the New Testament, uh, you have ministers of the gospel that have been duly ordained by a presbytery that have the authority to administer the ordinances of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that includes baptism and also the Lord's Supper. We do not allow anybody but ordained ministers to administer the Lord's Supper. So we're not going to allow anybody but ordained New Testament ministers uh, to administer baptism in this church so long as I have my right mind. It's just not going to happen. Uh, we're not going to yield from that. 
And I, we could spend more time on that, but today I'm not. We're going to move forward very quickly. I want to look at the purpose of baptism for just a few moments. Time is gone, but I want, I want to spend just a few more minutes. Why are we baptized? First of all, in Luke chapter 7, notice what is recorded here regarding baptism. Luke chapter 7, verse 29, and all the people that heard him, meaning Christ, And the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. Notice that again. These folks were baptized, and when they were baptized, what did it do? It justified God. That's amazing to think about. That when you're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, you are justifying God. Now, obviously, I am not making God righteous. But what am I doing in that act? I am making a declaration that I trust in the righteousness of God and I trust in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ as my only hope for ever standing before God. And I'm also saying that I align, my, align myself with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. I am consenting and making a sense of the reality that God is righteous. So that is the first and primary purpose of being baptized is to justify or declare by our action that we believe in a just and holy and righteous God. Also, because it fulfills righteousness. Remembering the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. When John would not allow him, he said, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it uh, uh, behooves us to fulfill all righteousness. So that's the second purpose. So first, we justify God. Second, we fulfill righteousness by being baptized. Third, you go to 1 Peter chapter 3, and you'll find that it gives, and it gives the individual being baptized the answer of a good conscience toward God. Now notice that 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter does not say that it gives you a good conscience towards God. If you don't already have a good conscience, you have no business being baptized. But an individual who has a good conscience, who hasn't been baptized, ought to be like those folks in Acts chapter 2 verse 38 saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then hopefully when they do what they say and are baptized, what happens? There's an answer. Why? Because they've fulfilled all righteousness. They've justified God. I know as I've already testified in my own experience that that's one thing I can always look back to and know there's at least one moment in my life that I know I please the Lord. And that continues to give me an answer of a good conscience. Being baptized did not give me a good conscience. I already had that, but I was troubled. <laughs> But once I was baptized, I wasn't troubled anymore, and I've never been troubled in that way ever again. Never again have I been troubled in that same way. Now, I've been troubled. My conscience has bothered me, and I needed a good answer, and I needed either the gospel or I needed reproof, rebuke to uh, straighten me out. But anyway, baptism gives the answer of a good conscience. In that same verse, Peter tells us another purpose of gospel baptism. He says, baptism doth now also save us now he's just given us a picture he says the like figure whereunto baptism doth now also what like figure well he's talking about right before that noah and his family on the ark and how they were saved not from water but saved by water what did the water save them from it saved them from the corruption and the wickedness and the sinfulness that God was destroying. And while they were, that, 
that water that came just wiped out the world that then was and the wickedness that was upon the earth. So that tells me that baptism also separates us from things, or at least it should. That once I commit my life or you commit your life to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that you're separating yourself from the wickedness in this world. Again, he just said that uh, uh, eight souls on the ark were saved by water. He says, the like figure whereunto baptism doth now also save us. How did that water save them? It separated them from a wicked world. How does baptism save us now? It separates us from a wicked world. It says uh, publicly that I am renouncing the world. I'm renouncing Satan's authority uh, and dominion over my life. I'm renouncing the ungodliness and wickedness that uh, pervades this world. And I am uniting myself. I'm linking myself. I'm identifying myself with the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll have his dominion over me. And I'll submit my life to him and try to serve him as a faithful follower throughout all the days of my life and through that hopefully with the help of God we'll be saved and separated from the wickedness in this world so it justifies God it fulfills righteousness it gives us the answer of a good conscience and it saves or separates us from this world and it helps it to identify us with the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts the 19th chapter there were some folks that were confused about the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you and I are baptized, understand that not only are we joining a specific body of people, but we're also aligning ourselves with a specific doctrinal statement. Here at Little Union Church, we have articles of faith that you can find on the wall out in the foyer and in the kitchen as well. If you need a copy, I'll be glad to get you a copy. And when you say you want to be a member of this local assembly, you are also saying that you align yourself with those specific doctrinal principles. And so when folks come from another group of people that do not believe like we believe, there's something we require here, and that is to be baptized again. Why? Well, there's a couple. One is we're not certain whether that other group is a New Testament church or not by their beliefs and practices. We're not certain that the minister had the authority because he has succession all the way back to the apostle. We don't know that. So uh, as a precaution, we're doing it for that reason. But there's a second reason. And that is because most likely when you were baptized into another order, you believed about another Jesus and a different gospel. A gospel that told you you had to do A, B, and C in order to be saved. That's not the gospel we find in the word of God. And that's not the savior that the gospel speaks of. The savior that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of is a savior who actually saved. A savior who accomplished the purpose for which he came into this world to do. And that is to save his people from their sins. Uh, we believe that when we are baptized, we are making a public profession that we believe in a victorious Savior, one who has accomplished salvation. Not one who that if I will do A, B, or C or something or this or another, that then I will be saved. But through the power and uh, the efforts of the Lord Jesus Christ and 
his merits alone, I will see heaven. Uh, without the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, I would be damned forever in the fires of hell. But thank God that through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, as uh, my substitute, now I'm now at one with God again. He's reconciled to me, and I'm reconciled to him. And uh, thank God we're justified in his sight. We do not stand condemned, but God has been forever satisfied uh, through the work of his son. And when you and I understand that and embrace that reality and we're baptized under that set of principles, we've been baptized correctly. But if I believe anything other than that, if I believe, well, first I had to say a specific prayer in order to be saved. Or I had to believe a certain way. Or I had to be baptized in order to be saved. Or I had to do X, Y, Z. Then obviously... I have marred the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and I have not been baptized in the way that I should have been because I was thinking the wrong thing. I was believing the wrong thing. I didn't comprehend the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the purposes of baptism is to link us and identify us with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ which simply states through him alone we have redemption of our sins through his blood. And so it is important where we're baptized so that hopefully we're embracing the true doctrine and true principles and true gospel that is found in the word of God. So again, baptism finds its history by a man that God gave authority to baptize, John the Baptist. It is dictated in the word of God that we're to be immersed that we're to be believers first, that understand that we need to repent and confess our sins and believe on Jesus Christ and trust that he is the Son of God. And once those things are true and we've sought out the proper authority to be baptized, then we ought to join ourselves with that New Testament church, be baptized, and in so doing, we justify God, we'll fulfill righteousness, we have the answer of a good conscience toward God. We're separated from this world. And now we're identified with the true doctrine of Jesus Christ himself. May God bless you today.